Hello and a warm welcome to this week's episode, episode number five of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. As always, I'm Paul, your host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and I begin as ever by thanking you, the listener, for joining me. I do hope you've all had a good week and your continued support means the world, so thanks very much, guys. I was very heartened by the response received from the previous two-part episode of the podcast, that concerning the case of the Stockwell Strangler. It rapidly became the most successful episodes to date, which I was very pleased about, and I thank you for that. I'm also grateful for the many kind reviews that the podcast has received on iTunes to date. As I mentioned last week, iTunes seems to be a bit weird in that reviews stay specific to the country they originate from. But if you do a bit of searching, you can find them. I just think they should be all in one place, really. But perhaps that's just me and pure logic. I'm sure many fellow podcasters out there will appreciate what I'm saying. So much work goes into producing episodes for the listener that it does mean a lot to see some nice reviews and to know that your time and effort is appreciated. Even honest reviews. As I've said throughout the podcast so far, I appreciate honesty and constructive criticism. So if you do get the time... And of course, if you wish, I'd be most grateful for an honest review of the show on the usual platforms. That would be brilliant. On the subject of reviews, I'd like to give a shout out to the great US-based podcast Whining About Crime, who was very kind to mention the True Crime Enthusiast in a plug following their latest episode. One of the things I love about the True Crime community is just how much they support and shout out for one another. And through their championing, others get recognised and get across to a wider audience. I firmly believe this is how a community should be, and I'm glad to extend the same courtesy here, so I'm going to make a regular feature of the podcast of passing on a couple of recommendations of other casts that I enjoy listening to. So please get on and check out Whack. Whack? Whining about crime? Great, eh? There seems to be no end of true crime podcasts. There are a lot of enthusiasts out there, especially across the pond, but whining is one of the better ones I've come across. It's a relatively new one, like myself, but you'll find great cases there, very well covered, pleasantly discussed, and it's great entertainment. True crime and wine. Sounds a pretty good night to me, that does. I'd also like to remind listeners that the top-ranked Minds of Madness True Crime Enthusiast two-part collaboration for the Minds of Madness podcast is now up in full, so please have a listen to the great two-part episode we came up with. It's about Derek Bird and the 2010 Cumbria Massacre. It's a bit of a shocking story, but Tyler and Beck have done absolute wonders with it, and it was my real pleasure working with them. I hope to again very soon. But back to this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and this week we look back at one of North Wales' strangest cases, the case of a missing person who is suspected now of being the victim of a murder. It's a very local case for myself, having took place only a couple of miles away from my now hometown, and I remember the coverage at the time very well as it was quite a high-profile case, although many years have passed now since the investigation and it's ground to a halt. It is again a case from the archives that I've covered on my WordPress blog before now. One I covered because I found it a strange case I believe will be unfamiliar to many. But because a big belief of mine is that no case is worth more than another and no one should be forgotten, I've decided to cover it this week for the podcast. I'll start by outlining outlining, outlining the known facts and then move on and discuss some of the various theories. Bear with me however because as this case takes place in Wales, some listeners may struggle a bit with the pronunciations of different places mentioned. So if I do sound like I'm speaking with a mouthful of spit, 
I'm not. It's just how us crazy Welsh pronounce some words and places. What can I say? The Welsh language has a 28-letter alphabet. So get comfy and relax, and please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of the disappearance of Trevelyn Evans. One of the most baffling cases in North Wales police history and subsequently one of its biggest investigations, is the much-celebrated disappearance in 1990 of middle-aged antique dealer Trevelyn Evans. Now more than 27 years later, it is still commonly claimed by North Wales Police to be one of the strangest cases they have ever investigated. Trevelyn has long since been declared dead, and it is widely accepted that she was killed and was the victim of a murder. But her body has never been found, there are no suspects, and no discernible motive for her disappearance. It remains as puzzling a case so many years later as it did back in the summer of 1990. Llangollen is a small town in North Wales, quite near my hometown of Wrexham, and it's situated on the edge of the River Dee and at the foot of the Berwyn mountain range. If you're struggling to say Llangollen, think of the word athlete, and Llangollen starts as you say the second, third and fourth letters of the word athlete. There you go, free Welsh mini lesson too. The town has a population of less than 4,000 people, but for a small town is a thriving visitor and tourist centre, with people attracted by the many beautiful and scenic walking routes it has to offer. It's a lovely little town, I've spent many a time in the Cornmill pub right next to the river there, and it thrives especially in the summer months due to the cultural arts celebration, which is the annual Llangollen International Eisteddfod and Fringe Festival. There you go, try and get your choppers around that. This is a mix of live music, comedy and several workshops and each year it attracts many thousands of visitors to the town in the months of June and July because there's always lots going on there. This year was no exception. Langothlan has an annual music festival and the Manic Street Preachers played on the open air stage there this year which I'm sure was a great gig. They're a great band and whenever I've seen the Manics live they've always drawn a great crowd in. Back in June 1990 was no exception either, the town being as busy as ever throughout that summer. Trevelyn Evans was a 52-year-old businesswoman who lived and worked in the town, running a small antique shop on Llangothlan's Church Street. Trevelyn had lived and worked all of her life in Llangothlan and was a family woman, happily married to her husband Richard and the couple had a son, also called Richard. Trevelyn and Richard were also the proud and doting grandparents of two boys called Hugh and Owen and who they doted on. The couple lived comfortably in a modest house on Market Street which is about half a mile across Langothland from Trevelyn's shop and they were a financially successful family. They owned a holiday bungalow in the North Wales coastal town of Rudland which is about 35 miles away from Langothland. Rudland is also a lovely little town and some of the nicest, most wonderful people I've ever met in my life are from Rudland. Saturday, June the 16th, 1990, was a normal working day for Trevelyn, who would routinely open her shop, Attic Antiques, each day at about 9.30am and would remain open until about 4pm. Friends and neighbours of her and Richard were accustomed to popping into the shop for chats throughout the day, along with browsing customers and visitors to the town, and Trevelyn would always welcome everybody in. Richard was away that Saturday at the couple's holiday bungalow in Rudland, having been there for a week at the time doing some building renovations to it. 
Trevelyn had accompanied him there to help at the start of the week, but had returned to the couple's home in Langothlan on Wednesday the 13th of July, leaving Richard there to continue the renovations. It is unclear exactly why she left midweek. When Richard tried calling Trevelyn at home that Saturday evening, there was no answer. It's hard to imagine a time without mobile phones and instant messaging, but back in 1990 there was none of that. After having tried call a few times with no success at various times throughout the day, he rang neighbours and friends of the couple to see if they'd seen or heard from Trevelyne, but this was to no avail. None of them said that they had. Richard by now began to wonder if perhaps his wife had had an accident and was hurt somewhere, and again contacted their neighbours to ask them to visit the shop, thinking perhaps Trevelyne had fallen and was hurt. His nagging concern rapidly turned to alarm when the neighbour who had gone round to the shop called to tell him that Trevelyne's car, a dark blue Ford Escort estate, was still parked in its usual spot just 30 yards down the road from Attic Antiques. The neighbour reported that the shop was locked and the sign that would become synonymous with the case, back in two minutes, was fixed to the door. By now thoroughly alarmed, Richard contacted the police to report his wife as a missing person and after anxiously waiting about for a period in case Trevelyne tried to contact him at the bungalow, he eventually decided to make the journey back to Tlangothlan. Back in two minutes would hardly suggest a woman who is about to voluntarily disappear. Indeed, from the off, Trevelyne's disappearance is nothing but perplexing. When Richard reached the shop with spare keys and the shop was searched by police, Trevelyne's handbag, purse, car keys and jacket were all left there, along with a bouquet of flowers and a bag of some fresh fruit. The note affixed to the door, when coupled with the items that remained in the shop, suggests that Trevelyne had just nipped out on an errand and had not meant to stay out for very long. It seemed unusual. Trevelyne was not your standard mixed-up teenager or vulnerable adult who is more commonly the missing person. She was a family-orientated, level-headed wife and mother. Because of how strange it seemed, a missing persons investigation was immediately launched by police. The resulting police investigation was to turn into the biggest missing persons inquiry in North Wales history, and no stone was left unturned. While detectives tried to establish a picture of Trevelyne's life, appeal posters with photographs of her were plastered around the town and neighbouring villages. House-to-house inquiries were conducted at every household in Langothlan and the neighbouring villages. The town and surrounding countryside were exhaustively searched, divers combed the River Dee and Langothlan Canal, and detectives exhaustively spoke to Trevelyne's family, friends, neighbours, tourists that were in Langothlan that day, to try to ascertain her exact movements. Over 1,500 people were spoken to who lived within a 12-mile radius of Langothlan, and more than 700 cars were eliminated from the inquiry. Appeals were made in the local and national press, televised appeals were made, and Richard offered a £5,000 reward for information leading to Trevelyne being found. It was a very high-profile case at the time, yet all this led to nothing. It was almost as though Trevelyne had disappeared off the face of the earth. The exact events of what happened that Saturday have never been fully explained, but detectives can best estimate the following from the known facts they were able to establish during the inquiry. That Saturday morning, it was a busy day and around 25 friends and visitors had called into the shop. All of the friends who had visited testified that that Saturday morning, Trevelyne had appeared normal, relaxed and happy, 
and had even made plans to go out with some friends for a few drinks in Tlangothlan that Saturday evening. One of Treveline's friends had given her the bouquet of flowers and fresh fruit, and the friend said that Treveline had said she'd planned to take them home with her. At about 12.40pm that Saturday, June the 16th, Treveline left her shop, leaving the note affixed to the door. Now the time can be determined as near approximate, because a friend who was interviewed by police reported speaking to Treveline in her shop at about 12.30pm. Another person who knew her walked past the shop at about quarter to one and noticed the sign fixed to the door. When she left her shop, Treveline then went and bought fruit, namely an apple and a banana in the nearby spa shop on Castle Street, which she was seen crossing at about 1pm. Castle Street is the main high street in Clangothlan and is about a quarter of a mile from Church Street, so allowing for travelling on foot and queuing in the shop on a busy Saturday afternoon, this timing would seem accurate. Again, this sighting and timing can be confirmed because Treveline was seen at this time by people who knew her well, both in the spa shop and when she was crossing Castle Street. The last confirmed sighting of Treveline, again by someone who knew her well, was 90 minutes later at 2.30pm near her home in Market Street. That sighting is the last definite sighting of her to this day. However, Police inquiries discovered that there were two more sightings of a woman matching Treveline's description following this, but neither have ever been confirmed as being Treveline. At 2.35pm that Saturday afternoon, a passing motorist saw a woman matching her description walking out of town along the busy A5 road heading towards the town of Corwin. This is about a mile from Treveline's shop, but relatively close to her home. Then at 3.45pm there was another sighting, this time of a woman matching her description walking into Park Avenue, which borders the River Dee. Park Avenue is a road that leads to a riverside footpath and is also in quite close proximity to Treveline's home. There were also reported, but again unconfirmed, sightings of a woman matching her description as a passenger in a car that was leaving Tlangothlan towards Corwin. The woman passenger was described as looking upset but the most promising lead police had because of the massive inquiry were reports that Treveline had been seen several times in the company of a man other than her husband. Described as well-dressed, this grey-haired man was seen several times with Treveline by people who knew her on the days leading up to her disappearance. He was seen in deep conversation with Treveline in her shop on the Thursday before she disappeared, and she was also seen walking from the direction of her home into town with a similar well-dressed man the next day. Two witnesses reported they were convinced they'd seen her in a Tlangothlan wine bar with this man on the Friday night before she disappeared and Treveline was again seen having what is described as a heated conversation with someone matching the well-dressed man's description in the back of her shop on the day she disappeared. Was this the same man each time? An artist's impression of this man was widely publicised at the time, but this man, or possibly these men, because it cannot be determined if this was the same man each time, have never been identified and have never come forward. Frustratingly, this artist's impression is now unavailable to find, but is considered no longer relevant to the police investigation anyway due to the passage of time since it was produced. All leads were investigated to exhaustion but came to nothing, and it remained to pose a mystery for the police. In 1992, two years after her disappearance, 
Detective Chief Inspector Colin Edwards was interviewed by the Wrexham Evening Leader newspaper about the case on the two-year anniversary and was quoted as saying, It is without doubt the strangest inquiry I have ever been involved with. How a happily married woman can vanish without trace on a sunny Saturday morning in a busy town centre is totally baffling. Though as with many other high-profile missing-person inquiries, in the years following her disappearance there have been several twists and turns with the Trevelyan Evans case, and over the years the case has featured again periodically in local and national newspapers. In 1993, three years after Trevelyan's disappearance, police utilised specially trained cadaver dogs to search a canal bank near Thlangothlan, They'd done so based on the member of the public having what is described as an overwhelming feeling that Trevelyan was nearby. The year before this, a large area of woodland near the World's End area was searched after a spiritualist medium claimed she was convinced Trevelyan's body was buried there. World's End is a desolate area of moorland very close proximity to Thlangothlan, but nothing was found despite extensive searching. To the credit of police, they have investigated each possible angle. Sightings of Trevelyan have been reported as far afield as London, France and even a remote town in Australia, but none of these have ever been confirmed. This tends to happen quite often with high-profile missing persons. I don't think there was a country on earth that Lord Lucan wasn't spotted in at after all. And maybe most of the time it's genuinely people with well-meaning intentions who mistake someone for the missing person. Other times, perversely, I reckon it's just people trying to draw attention to themselves, but that's just my opinion. In 1997, Trevelyan was declared legally dead, but police had long since been convinced that she had come to harm and that they were dealing with a suspected murder rather than simply a missing person. To this extent, at one time police considered a link between Trevelyan's disappearance and convicted serial killer Robin Ligus. Never heard of him? Nope, nor me, not a familiar one. Who was serving life for the murder of three men 30 miles away in Shropshire in the 1990s, as one of his victims was an antiques dealer. However, what was reported was that this line of inquiry was ultimately ruled out. With no other leads to pursue, the investigation was left inactive. But the inquiry was reopened and freshly appealed in January 2001, and this time was very much conducted as a murder inquiry. It concentrated upon Trevelyan's movements in the three days leading up to her disappearance, although by this time police had decided to disregard the artist's impression of the well-dressed man from 11 years previously, describing it as inaccurate now. Posters of Trevelyan were again put up in Thlangothlan and the surrounding area detailing her last known movements. House-to-house inquiries were again made in Thlangothlan, and a televised appeal was made for the second time on Crime Watch UK. Back in the good old days, when it was proper Crime Watch and hosted by Nick Ross and the late Jill Dando, and despite what he said, you did have nightmares because his voiceovers on the reconstructions were so scary. I can imagine his children have never slept a decent night in their life after having a bedtime story from him. And now the BBC has gone and axed it. Sad times indeed, eh? Axe Stenders or one of these crap reality shows. During the reinvestigation, Trevelyan's husband Richard was also arrested and questioned over her disappearance, and his alibi was scrutinised. He was, however, ultimately released without charge, and despite this mass reappeal, once again the investigation drew a blank, 
Police are keen to stress that the investigation is not closed, but is inactive and subject to periodic reviews, barring fresh information coming forward. As has hopefully been explained, it is a very complex disappearance and it's my firm belief that there are three explanations that are possible. That Trevelyne was abducted, that Trevelyne voluntarily disappeared, or that Trevelyne had some sort of mental episode and wandered off, perhaps suffering with amnesia. Starting with the latter, of course it is well documented for individuals to have sudden mental anguishes and to abandon all rational thinking. A large majority of missing persons cases each year are because of just such an instance. This can be triggered by a sudden shock event, or because of a series of stresses. But by all accounts, Trevelyn and her husband had a happy marriage and were devoted parents and grandparents. They had no money troubles, seemingly no stresses at all. Everybody who knew her who spoke to her on that Saturday were in unison that she was happy and had plans that evening, far removed from the actions of a woman with personal troubles or suicidal thoughts. If Trevelyn had had some sort of mental breakdown and had wandered off whilst having an episode, then it is more likely that she would have been recognised and found if alive. How far could she get on foot with no money without being seen? If she had had an episode and committed suicide somewhere, then it stands to reason her body would have been found. Although the countryside around Langothlan is vast, the searches of the area at the time of her disappearance were equally as vast and they covered the entire area. The canal was dragged, the River Dee was searched, coal mines and caves in the area were looked into, and local woods were searched thoroughly. Surely a body would have been found if Trevelyn had committed suicide or died of natural causes. It's for these reasons that I believe this is an unlikely explanation for her disappearance. Did Trevelyn voluntarily disappear then, being of sound mind, and was the whole thing planned? As explained, Trevelyn and Richard were financially secure and comfortable. They were according to all that knew them happily married, and Trevelyn was nothing but a devoted wife, mother and grandmother. She had her own business, many friends, and was well-liked and outgoing. It seems extremely unlikely that she would voluntarily run off and start a new life, and if she was willing to disappear, however, then there are many questions that are raised. Why was she leaving her life behind? There has been speculation that the well-dressed man Trevelyn had been seen with in the days preceding her disappearance was a secret lover, and that she left to start a new life with him. This has never been proven and remains just that, speculation. Both the initial investigation and the reinvestigation in 2001 scrutinised Trevelyn's lives and relationships, and nothing was found either time to suggest that she was having an affair. Trevelyn's friends and family also claim this would be extremely unlikely of her. Of course, the possibility does remain that she could have been involved in an affair, but however if this was the case, it again raises more questions than provides answers. Why then did she not leave the night before, or first thing in the morning? Richard was still away, she could have left any time, even days before. Why that Saturday? Why even open the shop at all, knowing she was going to leave it all behind that day? Why take no clothes with her? Trevelyn's home was searched thoroughly, and no clothing of Trevelyn's was found to be missing. And indeed, why leave behind essential items such as a handbag, money and a car, or items that must have been of great personal value, such as a photograph of your grandchildren? Why would you use no money whatsoever? Trevelyn's bank account was never touched after her disappearance. 
Why would Trevelyan go to the lengths of deliberately disappearing in such a way that created such an enigmatic disappearance, knowing how much she would be missed and the furor that disappearing in such a way would cause? And can it really be believed that a devoted mother and grandmother would willingly excommunicate herself from her family? At the time of her disappearance, this possibility was examined thoroughly and was dismissed. Everything that is definitively known about that Saturday suggests that Trevelyan had left her shop on a short errand and fully intended to return. The handwritten note was checked by family members and the handwriting was confirmed to be Trevelyan's, not written by someone else. Now I believe and share the popular opinion that Trevelyan was abducted and murdered. Police share this view also. In 1992, when interviewed by the evening leader, Detective Chief Inspector Colin Edwards said, We believe she must have been lured away, perhaps by someone she knew or thought she knew and taken out of the area, maybe in a car. We may never know what happened to her, but we do not think that she can still be alive. It's likely that she knew her abductor and it was someone that she felt familiar and comfortable enough to be alone with. It seems likely that Trevelyan either set out to meet somebody that afternoon or met somebody on her way back to the shop, but whether she did actually return to the shop or not at any point cannot be ascertained. What raised this possibility was the discovery of a banana skin in the rubbish bin at the shop. Of course, there is no way to ascertain this was the banana that she bought at the spa that Saturday. It could have been from a previous day. And if a friend had brought her a bag of fresh fruit, why then did she go out and get some more? I believe she didn't return. Why would you leave a sign on the door saying, back in two minutes, if you had returned? And if she hadn't returned, and was going out again for some longer reason, then wouldn't Trevelyan have taken at least her purse and handbag for a second time? Frustratingly, there is a window of about 90 minutes between confirmed sightings of Trevelyan that afternoon, where her movements are unaccounted for. Was she with a killer during this time? And what were they doing? As is standard with cases such as these, suspicion will of course have first fallen upon Richard being the prime suspect in her disappearance, and he was arrested as a suspect as routine in each investigation. Local rumour of his involvement abounded, as again is all too common, but unless police were particularly inept throughout two investigations, he was cleared of any involvement and ruled out as a suspect each time. He was found to be nothing but a grieving, perplexed husband, despite what people said about him maybe phoning so many people to try and establish his own alibi. The next logical person of interest in the case would be the well-dressed, grey-haired man that Trevelyan was sighted with numerous times. I do believe this was the same person each time. She was well known enough around the town that for her to be seen in company with different men would have been commented on and this would have likely filtered back to police attention. Who then was this man? It's possible that he could be a contact of Trevelyne's from the antiques world, perhaps a fellow trader or dealer or someone Trevelyne was negotiating to buy valuables from. Yet despite the massive publicity at the time, no one came forward to volunteer that they were this person and he was never identified despite an exhaustive investigation. Was this then the person responsible for Trevelyne's disappearance? It was obviously someone Trevelyne was on familiar personal terms with and if this man was who she was having what is described as the heated discussion with, then is it possible this was a precursor to a fatal argument that ended in Trevelyne being killed in the heat of a row? I feel it's unlikely that she was abducted from her shop 
as a forced abduction would have caused a disturbance and would have been witnessed, plus would have also left some signs of struggle. The abductor would have had to somehow restrain and silence Trevelyne, get her into a car, then keep her there whilst he locked the shop door, all without being seen? Highly unlikely. There are houses in very close proximity to the location of where the shop on Church Street was. It is a very narrow, very urban street with minuscule parking. It was also a busy Saturday, and travelling would be also an unlikely choice for a random abduction. A middle-aged shopkeeper? It would be easier if choosing a victim at random to abduct a hiker or tourist, of which there would have been plenty to choose from in Tlangothlan. It's my opinion that Trevelyne was taken soon after the last confirmed sighting of her. The killer must have had a vehicle and must have been extremely calm and collected, offering at least no initial threat whatsoever in Trevelyne's mind. Langothlan is one of the busiest towns in North Wales, and on a Saturday quite near to the Eisteddfod, there would have been more people around than usual. Yet no one reported seeing any sort of disturbance or scuffle between a man and a woman that day. So it seems very likely that if Trevelyne did go off with somebody, it must have been at least voluntarily to begin with. Perhaps the person she knew offered her a lift back to the shop, but she never made it back there. I feel it's likely that the abductor had premises nearby, and this is where Trevelyne was taken and killed. I believe that this was out of Langothlan, possibly up in rural North Wales or towards England. But this covers such a sheer massive geographical area that without specific information pinpointing an exact area, it would be impossible to ever find a burial site unless one was discovered by chance, and none has ever been in more than 27 years. Frustratingly, it's the lack of any real insight into what happened that afternoon that perplexes the most. All this is speculation based upon the scant evidence and leads in the case. As said before, this is long before CCTV was commonplace on every business premises and in towns, which would have been a goldmine back then. There's no body, there is no discernible crime scene, there is no definite motive, there are no suspects, there is nothing in Trevelyne's past to suggest that she had any enemies or was involved in anything illegal or illicit, and there is a missing 90-minute window between confirmed sightings of her that day. The disappearance has the feel of being an impromptu crime, but a very well-executed one. It seems that the most likely scenario is that Trevelyne went somewhere willingly with her killer, sidetracked before returning to the shop, and was killed in a spur-of-the-moment crime, perhaps during an argument, and then her body disposed of. But why was she killed? North Wales Police claim that the investigation is not closed, but unsurprisingly is currently inactive, and sadly most of the people who mourned Trevelyne's disappearance have now died themselves without ever knowing what happened to her. Trevelyne's father, her brother David, her husband Richard, and even her son Richard Jr. have all passed away now. But there is a surviving brother of hers, Leonard, who still lives in the Wrexham area. He's lived with the agony of not knowing what happened to Trevelyne for over a quarter of a century now, but he still holds out hope. When interviewed by the Wrexham leader for the 25th anniversary feature of the case, he said... The officers who worked on the case at the time, the ones I got to know, have all retired. There are no new theories about what happened, or any fresh evidence, and I realise the police have financial limitations. I would like the investigation to continue. I'm forever hopeful of finding out what happened. It is possible that somebody somewhere is still alive who holds the key to the mystery. 
but barring a deathbed confession, it is likely a secret that they will take with them to the grave. Time will tell, but until this happens, we are left with a question. Will the mystery of what happened to Trevelyne Evans ever be solved? What does the listener think? A strange case indeed, eh? What do you think happened to Trevelyne Evans? Did she wander off in the middle of some manic episode and die, either by accident or by her own hand? Did she disappear of her own accord to start a new life? Or did she come to harm at the hands of a killer? I'd love to know your thoughts and what you think. There'll be the usual discussion thread concerning this episode and the disappearance of Trevelyne Evans posted in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook. Please feel free to let me know what you think about the case in general or any ideas from a case for the UK that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast or any feedback about the podcast. It's an open forum, that's what the group is for. As usual, if you don't already and you wish to, I can be found on the usual social media. I'm always the true crime enthusiast or a slight variation on that, but details are up on the show notes as well. Incidentally, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, this is a case from my blog site archives, and for any listeners who wish to check it out, complete with pictures as is usual, it is there entitled Back in Two Minutes. I hope the listeners found this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast enjoyable. Trevelyne's case is one that's always intrigued me and it's an unfamiliar one worth recounting to a wider audience. So I'm glad to have been able to have researched it and brought it to you for this week's episode. I wish you all a good week and I'll be back with you very soon for another case covered by the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been and still am Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast. So please take care, be safe and I shall speak to you soon. Thank you and goodbye for now.